Last Things First. This episode of Last Things First is sponsored by Casper Mattress. Go to www.casper.com slash lastthingsfirst. Type in the promo code lastthingsfirst and receive an amazing price on an amazing mattress. Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of The Comics Comic, found wherever you can type The Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Jay Erickson's first TV credit was on BET. That's because Big J started stand-up comedy in all black rooms in Philadelphia. Now he's playing to everyone while often relying on his sharp wit to riff with the crowds in the moment. He hosts an all-crowdwork series, Big J. Okerson's What's Your F'n Deal, on the NBC digital comedy platform, CISO. And his previous credits include multiple stories on Comedy Central's This Is Not Happening, and appearances on Late Night with Jimmy Fallon, and Comedy Underground with Dave Attell. Big J currently co-hosts The Bonfire on Sirius XM Satellite Radio every Monday and Wednesday with fellow comedian Dan Soder, and also co-hosts the Legion of Skanks podcast with friends Louis J. Gomez and Dave Smith. They're throwing their first anti-comedy festival, Skankfest, this June in Long Island City, New York. And Big J. Okerson's first hour-long TV stand-up special, Live at Webster Hall, is premiering on Comedy Central. So let's get to it! So, uh, Big J... Uh, before sitting down with you, I uh, did a little throwback Thursday action and looked up. We had done an interview five years ago that was captured on video in the basement of comics. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that would <laughs> be more than five years ago. Well, according to YouTube, it was five years ago. That's wrong. It's got to be like seven years ago. I mean, the comics have been shut down for like a few years, yeah. At least six. Uh, where did the time go? I don't know, man. It's nuts. I started thinking about a lot of things and like, uh, Things that seem like just yesterday, you're like, that was a decade ago. Uh, Rich, you know what it was? Rich and Bonnie. Okay. Uh, Rich and Bo- Rich Voss and Bonnie McFarlane getting right. married. <laughs> well, they got to be married now for like seven years or so. And then I think, uh, or been together for like, you know, seven years. And then right. I'm like, oh, their kid is eight. Right. So it's like 12 years, it turns out. And I'm like, that's crazy. <laughs> I remember their wedding. Like, it was like, doesn't seem like it was that long ago. Yeah. So crazy. How, how much do you... So when you think back to your own career, how much, how much, how much change have you seen in yourself? In what regard? As Maybe. a comedian, and as in terms of goals or ambitions. Well, goals and ambitions have only been met over the last year and a half. It seems <laughs> like. Um, as far as my comedy changing, mm-hmm. the, the the lucky thing about not kind of hitting any kind of a peak, or getting any kind of mainstream success for so many years creates a situation where I'm, I'm still just grinding it out in the clubs a lot. Right. And I love doing comedy. So that wasn't like, uh, Oh, I guess I'm going to go do another spot tonight. You know, I, I enjoy doing that. I didn't mind running around doing like the seven spots a night on the weekends when I was able to, you know, my, my, my name in the city was good for several years now right. where I can work pretty much as much as I'd like to, which is great. Even though, the road wasn't booking me. The industry really had no idea what to do with me or who I was, even most of them. But uh, being able to grind that out was I was able to stay strong in comedy and get confident and comfortable on stage. You know, it's the, the laughter is subjective, I guess. But I was definitely like, able to do my job very well. Yeah. Whether, remember... people, whether people laugh or not, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's always going to be <clears throat> show to show. But for the most part, like learning how to just like do well and be myself, be comfortable, kind of make people get into what I do. That's the lucky thing. Some people kind of pop quick and then their stand-up, you can still see someone who's like very popular get lost on stage because they've never dealt with, you know, A, B, or C situation. Right. And you've seen it all. And you obviously have to be very comfortable to to be able to sit in crowd work and not just be a, who are you, what do you do, and then make fun of that. Right, To right. be an actual... To build off of that. Comedian beyond, who can... Yeah. Who can interact with an audience also i go last on a lot of shows so a lot of times the 
who you, who are you, where are you from, what do you do, has have been done already. Right. They've already t- tackled everybody in the front so row. So I have to kind of like quickly get through those things. You know, that there's sometimes the groan from the audience where you're like, you know, oh, are you guys a married couple? And you hear the audience go, uh, you know, it's like we've already gotten into it. And then, you know, my third question is about, you know, have you guys ever butt fucked on a boat? And everyone's like, oh, no one's asked that yet, I guess. <laughs> I remember hearing you tell, um, I've heard you tell this story a few times about your early days in comedy and being on a plane with Pink. And, yeah. but the, the thing I remember even more than being on a plane with Pink is that you, you used to have this big choreographed set piece with music and you, you ripped yeah. your clothes off. It was too well. Yeah, that was uh, my big closer was to uh, play the 2001 theme. I would say the joke was about bodybuilders. Like I grew up, my stepfather was a weightlifter, mm-hmm. so he had a lot of friends who were bodybuilders, and I would just kind of talk about how stupid that was, and you know, just a, a lame excuse to get to the punch of this, which was like uh, all of a sudden the 2001 theme would come on, which you know what that is, right? Yeah. Like boom, 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 boom. And uh, with every crescendo, I would take off a piece of clothing and just keep posing out. And, you know, the joke was like, fat guy in a fucking his underwear, you know. And uh, it would just destroy in these black comedy rooms I did. And uh, and then it just takes that going bad one time before you're like, oh, this is a stupid risk to take. <laughs> For something that's not very, you know, it's very easy funny. Right. You know what I mean? It's 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 hack, essentially. You know, a lot of people don't take their clothes off on stage. It's just an easy laugh. Anyone could do that and get the laugh. I've done it. Take your clothes off on stage? Yeah. Yeah, it happens. I'm saying it's very like, it's a, it's a, it's just the same way. It's the, it's the, it's in the same vein as when you first start out, whatever your flaw is physically, Mm -hmm. generally too, you just harp on that. So if you're short, it's a bunch of being a short guy jokes. You know, like uh, if you're tall and lanky, it's like, here's the problem being tall and lanky. And and the the easiest go-to is if you're fat, it's like, oh, I'm fat and being fat. And when you're fat and, oh, I I can't do that because I'm fat, Um, all the jokes around that. And it's just in the same vein. Like the joke was, hey, I'm not a bodybuilder. I have an awful body. And look at me getting naked still. I really am Big J. Yeah. (laughs) What what was the first time when you thought, when you kind of – started to to see an evolution or wanted to make that change from these big kind of hacky set pieces to more crowd work, interactive, being in the moment. The crowd work came along because my first kind of like transition from, was from like not telling jokes so much as telling stories and uh, like longer form like jokes, I guess, if you will, but stories essentially. Right. And I would – um what I would do is once I got bored of telling this because they are so long and I'm telling them three times a night because I'm just doing my set, you know, mm-hmm. and these are my new, my newest stories that I'm going to tell. Um, I get bored of telling them. So I would try to weave into the stories by working the crowd. And I came uh, to get pretty comfortable doing that. And then going, because I wasn't on the road a ton, and everything, I'd work these same clubs in the city every mm-hmm. night, and I'd see the wait staff just bored out of their minds with, like, the comics. Great comics. Nothing about the comics at all. But people who commit to their set. So they're seeing five nights a week the same comics doing the same set and rolling their eyes at it when they get to the punchlines, you know, almost like, oh, my God, enough of this. Even if they loved it the first couple times they heard it, now it's like, oh, geez, enough. And I didn't want that to be the case. I just like my own ego was like, oh, I don't want people, like, not liking my jokes, you know, like being weird about my set being the same every time. So I was just like, I won't even do any of my jokes or stories. I would just do all talking to the crowd to kind of entertain the staff. And then I would get, as my popularity really didn't increase for a couple years, it was nice that at least the staff, even on the road, I realized the staff would be the people who would make sure I get back there because I would be a favorite of theirs because they got to see – five very different shows or and I'd close out the comedy clubs and the, and the staff would be like happy I was there because like, Oh, they all try to stop working and watch me do uh work the crowd. And that meant a lot to me because 
people who, even, who don't even do crowd work, but I remember Patrice, specifically uh, Patrice O'Neill and like Attell were guys, when they went on stage at the comedy clubs, the staff tried to stop working to watch. And when I felt, and then comics trying to come down to watch. Right. And when I started feeling that happening was a, that was a big moment for me in a, at the time in a, in a place where I wasn't getting much industry or mainstream like attention or, or, or people giving a shit. This, the fact like my peers and the staff like really wanted to watch was important. That's what I was able to hold on to. So how did it feel then to be able to, to pitch and, and create a whole series that's crowd work for CISO? You know, I got to give the, uh, a lot of the credit to that to Christine Evans, my girlfriend, and Rebecca Trent. I loosely just kind of farted out that idea one time. I go, wouldn't that be kind of cool to have, like, you know, these comics who I think are great comics? I'd love to see Dave Attell, Colin Quinn, these guys just do, like, a full set of just, just talking to the crowd because they're so funny and they have such great jokes. But, like, just to see them, like, take what I see in a conversation with them and take that to the stage and they're all capable of it and they're all great at it you know even if they don't think they are they are most good comics if not all good comics like have the ability to just kind of like once you lose the idea that you're like need a laugh now you know it's like <laughs> well it's been 30 seconds and there has you know the, the formula right isn't there once they kind of sink into it and realize it doesn't matter like you're you're building something here they're all so good at it like, that'd be kind of neat but i'm like well who why who's going to give us that to do and then Rebecca Trent and Christine both uh they pitched it to Montreal Comedy Festival to do as like a midnight surprise show right and we did it there the format was even a little bit different at that time what we used to do then because comics would get nervous about working the same people too much mm -hmm. like you're gonna lose that that's why I give that speech almost that I said to you before like every question can never be asked to one group you can ask one person infinite questions for three hours you know and 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 we're gonna do that right now yeah but they're gonna <laughs> but they're gonna say ridiculous things everybody's weird you know everyone's got their own thing so if you ask enough questions like there's something there uh be it sexual or lifestyle whatever it is yeah and uh so we so we used to we rotated the audience which we never did again but we actually like had the front two rows would swap and go to the back of the room and we'd bring Two rows. Everyone would move forward two rows. It was a hell of an endeavor, but it went well. The show went very well, and then we started continuing to do it, like in New York, a little bit, just live shows. And we got it into they got it into the New York Comedy Festival. They got to South by Southwest, and people started wanting to do it and be a part of it. And that, uh, and then we did it in South by Southwest one year for the second year we did it South by Southwest. Uh, Evan Shapiro was one of the heads over at CISO. Yeah, he is the head. Yeah. Yeah, he saw it, and he loved it, and he uh, he made, made an offer on it, and it was just exciting. Very exciting time. I didn't think that was ever going to happen, but it's so so cool. And they gave us, like, uncensored, full, you know, they let us uh, really, like, spread our wings on it and do whatever we wanted to do, and it, it was great. Yeah, I was at uh, taping of a couple of the episodes, and it was it was amusing to watch how certain comedians really thrived in that setting, and others Yeah, some people, others some felt people the struggled. pressure of yeah, it. Yeah, but, but everyone did well. You know what I mean? Like, right. no one no – one, no one bombed. Ate shit at yeah. all, yeah. So it was like some people did better than others, but everybody had, you know, it's a showcase show, so everyone's got to get edited down to four minutes anyway. Right, to make it a half-hour episode. So in in these 10-minute sets, everyone was doing 10, 12 minutes, like everyone's going to have at least four, <laughs> like, great minutes, you right. know, and, that, and then we were able to get uh, an amazing show out of it. Well, you know, that's also kind of the, the magic bullet that people who aren't professional comedians always – they're trying to figure it. The riddle that they're trying to figure out is, I'm funny in the office. How do I be funny on stage in the dark with a microphone and spotlights? A, I'm sure it's been said a zillion times, but it really is. like It feels like it's such a journey to get to like, even if you're doing well as a comic, it's you. the same reason people thought you should do comedy or you thought you should do comedy. Even if you're doing well three years in, four years in, five years in, and I know they say the formula is 10 years, however many years it takes, your big journey is to just go into a giant circle to just get back to that same confident, funny you were just being around people. You know, you never thought about it. You didn't write material to hang out with your friends. Right. You just did it. You just were funny. 
You just were funny. And then people the said, you should do that on stage. You should right. do that. And then when you get on stage, you're like, well, I don't, these people aren't my friends. <laughs> they might not think I'm kind of, but, but they would if you are just able to tap into that thing. Well, Patrice uh, kind of worded that very eloquently. He was like, you know, he goes, go on stage with that same confidence you had with your, just your buddies. You're like, well, I'm funny. I'll say funny shit. Was, was that how you saw yourself when you were a kid growing up in Philadelphia? Were you organically funny? Yeah, I think I was the funny guy around my friends, but a lot of that was based off of I was just a huge fan of comedy. Um, comedy movies and all that, definitely, but, uh, but stand-up. I just loved it, and I didn't have cable, so I'd go to West Coast Video, was the video store in our neighborhood. Sure. And I would rent all, like, the... Comedy or the uh, there was no Comedy Central. The like, HBO half hour specials, the HBO hours, yeah. everything that was out. I would just get like two or three at a time and I, just watch them. And then I would kind of go to school and regurge <laughs> right. the jokes. The person who th- made me feel like it looked awesome to do comedy was uh, Dice. I thought Dice when I watched Dice, I was so taken back by that, and I couldn't wait to go tell those dirty <laughs> jokes to school the next day. You know, I was twelve or thirteen years old. I couldn't wait to go tell people those jokes, but uh, he also made it look like, man, what a cool thing to do. That was that was the case at my high school cafeteria tables where kids were regurgitating dice all the time. Because, I mean, everything back, you know, like the nursery rhymes, like yeah. when you're a kid, you're like, this is great. <laughs> Jack and Jill went up a hill. And that fucking whore. <laughs> and you're like, yes. <laughs> How, how how old were you when you then decided, oh, I want to try to do this for real? Um, Upon suggestion of a friend, actually, who saw my friend Jamie, who was able to come to my hour special, which was very nice. Uh, Jamie was a friend of mine from high school. We lost touch for like a year. When I was 19, we just went out to dinner one night, and she was asking me what I was doing, and it was... The answer was sort of disappointing. It was when I was yeah, going what were you doing? community college and uh, working at a 7-Eleven. She was like, oh, I always thought you would try comedy or something. You were always so funny. And I was like, maybe I will. You know, that <laughs> my, my, But how do you even do that? It just seems yeah. like it's – you only see comics at that point, especially at that age, on a professional level. You know what I mean? You don't see them. Right. You're not going to a comedy club normally at that no you're not even allowed to really so i didn't even know where there was one in philadelphia or anything and and like a day later i very serendipitously like happened upon the comedy club in philadelphia go with my friend he was buying sneakers Mm -hmm. and there was the sign for open mic at the laugh house which was an all black club did you know that at the time no i found out quick though (laughs) (laughs) i buckled the first five weeks i went i didn't actually go on I signed up, and then when they called my name, I'd be like, mm-mm, like, no way. But you were watching the other comedians. Intently, yeah. What did you What did you, What did did you? you gain over those five weeks before you eventually did get on stage? I thought I couldn't do it because I was impressed by what they were doing. It didn't matter if it was, like, hackneyed or bullshit, like, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, the hack stuff of the black community, which is, you know, stool humping and, and playing music and all the things I did mm-hmm. when I ended up starting – and trying to do well in those scenarios was, uh, but I was just like, why they're going up there and doing, it? and like, look at this whole room is like punching their tables, laughing, you know, I'm like, that's gotta be just the fact they could pull that off. I'm like, this is crazy <laughs> that they're able to do this. And then, uh, I went up there in my first set, like who knows how it really went. I mean, but it felt like it went like that kind of good. Now every joke was just fat. So I'm fat. And I think then it was, you know, it was fat, fat, fat. What's up with Jerry Springer show? <laughs> you know, it's like just things I knew being 19 years old. I didn't know much. You know, I didn't have life experience. What yet. changed that night that you did say yes when they called your name? I After brought friends. No. Okay. The first five, <laughs> the first five, four weeks, I think it was four or five weeks, I, I didn't bring anybody. So that when I said no, I didn't feel like I was tucking my tail and no one knew anyway. Right. They were just like, you know, they'd say my name. They go, oh, I guess he's not here or anything. And then, uh, you know, the host every week was, uh, two, you know, Ture Gordon? Yeah, I met Ture when he was a new face. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Ture was the host of that show. And he would call me up and I would just like kind of get, look at him from the stage. Like, <laughs> like, mm. like, no, I'm okay. And like the fifth week, I was like, I'm bringing friends. And I told him, I was like, can you guys come to this? It's $5. But I was like, I can't, like, I'm not going to go on unless I feel pressured. Like, you guys paid money. I have to go on. And uh, they did. 
they paid that money, and I went on. And I, 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 what I remember to be a good set. I remember I felt good after it was over. I know the next like several times, eight times I went on stage, I felt like I was just eating shit. But I did feel like that. Like oh, I can get. I did it once. But I thought I had to write a new five minute thing every week. <laughs> right. So, so yeah, it was just you like don't, you don't you're, know you're, when you first start. What yeah, you're and you're to be doing, and you're rushing it out so fast that it's just the worst material. You know, right, so again, you do was, five minutes and two. Yeah, but I was always dirty. Well, I mean, I mean, rushing out like the writing of it. So okay. it's like I'm like, oh, I have to have a whole new thing from last week. So, you know, watch a different episode of Jerry Springer and see. You know, it's like, hey, I saw. You know, so last week I did a Jerry Springer joke. This week it's about this different situation where a stripper is mad at somebody and whatever. And then I started watching the the animation of the uh, black comedy circuit and being like, oh, I should do, I should be a little more physical, louder, use music, all these things and start incorporating. And I started to get comfortable in that scene relatively quick. <clears throat> in and fact, that... I was very nervous when I came to New York and started performing for crowds that were not just black, but everybody, black, white, Hispanic, you know, and I, I was like, how am I going to do this? They're not going to get my P. Diddy reference. <laughs> We've we've talked before about how you used to come up to New York with other Philly comics. Mm -hmm. Who were your first comedy friends in Philadelphia, and how did you become comedy, comedy um, BFFs? I started um, in September of <clears throat> 2000, 2009, 1999. Sorry. <clears throat> That's all right. In, uh, yeah, 1999, September, I started, and then... Like two weeks later, Kevin Hart started, hmm. same club, and me and him kind of like hit it off. We played video games and stuff, so we kind of became buddies on that. And then a few months later, Kurt Metzger started, and me and him hit it off very good because I was very intrigued by Kurt, art student, raised Jehovah's Witness, you know, kind of yeah. a, a goofy guy. <laughs> still. Still. Very, very funny out of the gates. Yeah. Like, knew how to just write funny shit right out of the gates. He was so talented, and he was so different from all my other friends that I really, like, latched on to him in a way. We both did, I think, to each other, because we were both different people than either of us have ever hung out with, and we became pretty tight. And the three of us just kind of, like, rolled around and did shit together. Ironically, Kev and Kurt, I mean, knew each other and were friends for sure, but, like, I was, like, good friends with Kev and good friends with Kurt. You know what I mean? Like, they, we didn't really overlap too much. Okay. Except we'd all go to New York to do these shows together. And it was uh, – so, yeah, those those two were kind of like the, you know, the road could, dogs. Could you – how how quickly could you tell that, that both Kevin and Kurt had something special that was going to break through? I didn't at all. I didn't know that. I, I'm still taken back by that. I mean, you know, Kev's arguably one of the top ten famous people in the globe. Yeah. He's got his own Nike sneakers yeah. coming up. Yeah, absolutely. I saw him uh, pitching those. It's, uh, I didn't know. I mean, Kev was very likable, mm -hmm. loud, did his thing, but he was doing what we were all doing. You know, he had the same horrible like <laughs> a, a take on humor and jokes that we all had. Kurt was the strongest. What I appreciated about Kurt was Kurt didn't pander at all, and I was pandering a lot. Kev was pandering a lot. Kurt was just doing his jokes, and it wouldn't always go well, but I was so they were so funny, these jokes, that when he would get a, these black crowds that were listening, he did do very well because the jokes were universally funny. Just sometimes they would judge him because he's wearing khaki pants and, like, you know, he's dressed like a 19-year-old pothead, you know? And they really just weren't, and he didn't do any, like, you know, yo, what up, y'alls? You know, like, what's up, dogs? Me and my fucking posse was, like, you know, whatever the vernacular of the time was <clears throat> and uh he um he just kind of stuck to his guns with that which is impressive yeah but the, the fact that now to see a building wrapped in a billboard for kev is still like you know i'm so amazed by that and not not like amazing it would never happen i'm like i'm like wow how cool is that that we started together he's got that going on kurt is uh you know, in demand, high, like high in demand writer for every comic we respect wants him to like write on their projects. You right. know, anything me and Kurt have gotten to do, which is a few things where we uh, act together in something, <laughs> you know, we'll be sitting next to each other going like, man, remember we used to sign up and we'd be like number 40 and 41 <laughs> on the open mic at the Laugh House. Like 
the odds that we both are succeeding in any way is pretty cool. Yeah. I think it's a, a neat story. Because I know I know people from back in Philly to people that were here in New York when I first came to New York and started that are just gone. A lot of people just leave comedy. It's just like yeah. you know, one day they're like, hey, "This isn't happening." They, so they I'm drift out. away. Sure, yeah, because it's it's a long haul, and there's you know, five years ago, four years ago, three years ago, I had times where it's like you know, I'm in my 30s and I'm going, "Oh man," I did not picture in my 30s that I'd at the end of the month, you know, my bills were paid, thank God, but after my bills are paid, it's like you own three hundred dollars, four hundred dollars, and it's like. Shit, I got to do something. I got to build that all, right. all that up again. Because I had a daughter pretty young. I got to build that all up again to all go away again and just kind of hold this bank of like 300 and some dollars so I'm not completely broken. Well, you also went through some issues. Didn't you lose a house at one point? No, I never through... owned a house. But no, what happened was uh, that was about, I guess, what was it, five years ago now? Five, five years ago was Hurricane Sandy. The, right, the superstar, right? I yeah, remember something came, happened with where you were staying and you had to... Yeah, just all my stuff. It was my mother-in-law at the time. It was her house. And uh, the way we had the house kind of set up was like downstairs was kind of like mine. Mm -hmm. My uh, ex-wife's... My ex-wife and daughter kind of like dwelled upstairs. Okay. And I did too. I mean, like I was up there too, but like kind of like when they'd go to bed or when i come home at night, because I... You know, you get home from doing comedy, you're not like hitting the sack right away. I'd, no, you're still wound up. I'd bring yeah, Dave Smith decompress. home with me, and we'd play video games, or we'd watch TV or whatever, and I had, like, you know, a big setup downstairs right. for that, and a big bed and stuff, so just kind of, like, crashing down there. But uh, because of that, and it was just easier, I kind of used the bathroom downstairs. I uh, All my clothes and everything were down there, my TV, my video games, my shoe, everything. And that basement... Hurricane Sandy was for just filled with, I mean, filled to the roof with water. So everything I owned was gone, mm. clothes, all electronics. The car got this from my ex-wife who had left to stay somewhere else. And I said I was going to stay behind kind of and try to, like, fight a flood. <laughs> because there was Hurricane. There was one the year before. Irene. Was it Irene? Uh, I think it was Irene. <clears throat> Hurricane Irene came the year before, and it was like three inches of water in the basement. That's it. Right. But it ruined a lot of stuff. Caused a lot of problems. Didn't destroy everything I own, but it was like... Anything you put on the floor. Yes. There was definitely some things that yeah. were like, oh, this sucks. You know, like furniture, <laughs> a lot of furniture got messed up. And we... Um, I was like, you know, with the Sandy coming, I was like, you guys go. I'll stay behind. I'll try to, like, fight this thing. And see, you know, because if I could just... Even, even if I had to bail water with a bucket... Mm -hmm. I could save the three inches of water I could fight. You know, it's no big deal. And then, I mean, in minutes, it was, like, up to my, like, thighs, the water. And I was like, it's a wrap. So I called my uh, wife at the time, and I was like, can you come get me? I got to get out of here. Like, this is it. It's just the water. This house is going to be destroyed. She goes, okay. She ran over there, and just, like, the timing, like, I mean, we got in the car. She grabbed me, turned around to leave, and we were being chased down the block by a wall of water. And it just rose up to the side. I mean, it came up to my window of the doors of the car, and it killed the car. Car was dead, totaled. First new car I ever owned, too. It just like destroyed it. It was a, it was a Ford Explorer too. It was a big. That's how high that water was. Yeah, it that's came a, up to the that's window. A tall SUV. Feet, you know, it was mm -hmm. like uh, three, four feet of water coming down like a wall down the street. It was pretty scary, but yeah, so it destroyed the car. So yeah, so that happened a few years ago. Kevin Hart, you know, I, don't, I know he's not looking for kudos for it, but uh, he forced me to put money in my bank to, like, help me get back on my feet, which was a pretty cool thing. For a guy, we don't talk very much. You know, we're out of each other's loops, which I get. Right. I'm, not, I'm not resentful of that at all. It's fine. You know, he's but um, so we lost touch in many ways like that. But, you know, when he got word back from Keith Robinson, you know, telephone back to him. He, like, I said no, and he, like, forced me. Like, he, like, went through my mom and, like, figured out. Bank wow. account shit to like make sure he gave me money. Yeah, it's pretty neat. That's that's a true comedy friend. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, looking out. Did and you... I needed that. <laughs> like, it definitely helped. When's the last time you thought about buying a mattress? For me, the first time I thought about buying one was when I was 21 years old, and that was a long, long time ago.
you know, a lot has changed in terms of how you go about buying and, and testing things out. You know, last things first. The last thing of the day is you want rest. And the first thing you want when you wake up is you want to feel good. You don't want to feel all cranky or feel kind of knots in your neck because you're on a bumpy mattress. And Casper has done this amazing thing where they take two technologies. It's a hybrid of latex foam and memory foam. And uh, I don't know how much it remembers, but uh, I know the latex feels good. And it provides just the right sync and the right bounce for you. And it's obsessively engineered. I, you know, most engineers are obsessive, I think. So, you know, that's that's great. It's also made in America, which is good. I like uh, I like being a, a, a patriot, a, a true citizen of the world and of my country. Really, the most important thing, though, is they've taken this comfortable mattress and they've given it to you at a fair price. Actually, better than fair. Uh, if you're going online and you're looking at, at mattresses, you might see... Prices upward of fifteen hundred dollars, but a Casper you can get a twin size mattress for five hundred, or a king size for nine fifty. You know that's just outstanding. I, I can help and make it even more outstanding for you right now. You can get fifty dollars toward any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com/lastthingsfirst and use the promo code I'm giving you right now, Last Things First. Terms and conditions apply, but uh, sleep is your primary need, and I'm here with Casper to give it to you. Thanks. When when you guys first uh, laid siege on New York as Philly Comics, did you have a, a plan, a plan of attack, or? Just try to get into the clubs. I didn't have any uh, grandiose dreams. Like I said, I didn't, I didn't really want to be an actor. Didn't really care about being in movies or sitcoms or commercials or all the things that we have to do. I just wanted to go be a famous comedian if possible. That was my hope. So just my phase one was just like getting all these clubs work. I was very intrigued by the uh, romanticized version. Eddie Ift was a, uh, one of the only mainstream comics I know that came down to work at the Laugh House on a weekend. And as a, we, as young comics there, we were allowed to come on the weekends and watch the acts. Greer Barnes was another one I thought was pretty amazing, but he wasn't super talkative to me after the show. I mean, I'm, I know Greer very, very well <laughs> But it's, which I get at the time, right. I was like, you know, I was probably going to him giving him a bunch of like, hey, what's it like working with, and did you ever do? And he oh, was like, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but Eddie F talked to me for a while. I remember him just, I told him this again recently. I mean, him just regaling me with stories of like, and then you go to Danger Fields, and that's $30 for, you got to do a half hour spot. And then I go over to the comic strip, that's 20 bucks that's for doing a spot one night. And then you... You know, here, there. So you get like, you know, 60 bucks a night, which at 19 seemed like, I'm like, that's amazing. A night? He's like, then you go over to the comedy, which they don't do this anymore, but they go, you go down to the comedy cellar, and then after midnight, you're, uh, it's a food spot, it's called, where oh, they, right. they pay yeah. you in. Your meal is free. And I'm just like, wow, you're like living off of comedy. Like, it's even paying for your meal, literally, like directly. You do it for the meal, and, and you get a couple bucks in your pocket, and it's amazing, and I, I thought that was so. So I was just kind of looking the point to get to there, where I'm like, oh, comedy, just doing these comedy spots is paying for my thing. But then you realize, several years in, you have to have bigger goals, bigger dreams, <laughs> because you can't. I mean, you could survive, I guess, on comedy spots, but you right. will become a dinosaur that will be phased out eventually. Mm. How long did it take you to even accomplish that goal? That at surviving off of spots. Yeah, years, a couple years. I never took a day job. In New York. And when I lived in Philly and I was commuting back and mm -hmm. forth to New York, I took some day jobs, but never in New York because the beauty of that black circuit, and I will, I, I don't take shots at it really at all because it did keep me afloat because where young comedy in the mainstream circuit, your best you're hoping for is to get on stage at all. Forget money. Right. You're hoping you don't have to pay to get on stage. I could still go do... Like, uh, once I get past the phase of, like, the quote-unquote New Jack spots they would do where you make a couple bucks to, you know, or they'd give you, like, 20 bucks maybe to go on early in the show. Once you get past that, you're getting booked for, like, you know, $100, $150. Some things are, like, $200. You'd go perform at these horrible ski trip shows, and that would be, like, $700. All this money I've never seen before and seemed, like, at the time, like, what? In fact, I believe the seven hundred dollars we were getting ripped off because I think I think those ski trip shows they offer a lot more, but they would send somebody like me out there because you know they could tell me five hundred dollars less than everybody else is making. And I go, yeah, right. of course then, I will. And then the promoter just keeps it. Yeah, of course. 
But um, I would do those shows and make money like that. So I would be able to pocket money like that. And then I kind of latched on to the people who I thought were great, people who I thought were funny, who would like kind of become friends with me. I was I was always good at meeting people and not mm-hmm. being like a nudge, I think, because uh, Bobby Kelly started taking me on the road pretty quick after meeting him. Patrice O'Neill took me on the road, you know, the, to learn from those guys was huge. And then, and then several years in, once David Tell kind of took an interest in me uh, and started taking me on the road, like he took care of me so well, you know. And Keith Robinson, I always have to give kudos, is the guy who brought me, Kurt, and Kev out of Philadelphia. He brought us to New York and showed us the mainstream circuit. Yeah, I just saw, Ke- <clears throat> I just saw Keith uh, a couple weeks ago. Yeah, he's doing good. It was, uh, it was good to see him back from... His own health issues. So good. Yeah, when I went to see him in the hospital, it was like very fresh, his stroke, and it was uh, real tough. Real had, tough for me. Had you... Uh, I mean, you know, tougher for him, I'm sure. But. Had you seen Patrice in the hospital? Nope. No. We kept... In fact, it was kind of a point of contention with uh, with me and his uh, girlfriend. Vaughn. Vaughn, because... Uh, we, we've discussed it since and everything, mm-hmm. but I, I don't know why I was like kept out of that for some reason. Like, we call every day. Me and Max's wife, like, can we come? Like, right. I mean, Patrice is a guy, I mean, I spent, I think, the last six Thanksgivings, seven Thanksgivings of my life at his house. We did uh, all the barbecues and stuff. I mean, a lot of people went to those. But the Thanksgiving, yeah. I, I used an example because that was a little more intimate. It wasn't an outside thing. It was how many people he could fit in his living room, you know. Right. He'd have, like, six people over. And, uh, and me and my daughter and my, uh, my ex-wife were, like, those – part of that group that uh-huh. came over here so i was just like why are we being exed out of this and, but they kept he's okay he's gonna be fine he's gonna be fine and then one day you hear it's it it's a wrap so yeah that was a bummer but you dedicate That's why i rushed out to see keith okay when yeah, I heard, I... because i was like i'm not having that happen again well you d- you dedicate the uh the coming central hour to patrice yeah yeah i really did i mean you know i sit down for the whole hour that was someone i watched you know not, not to not that i mimicked his thing at all I think we have similarities because I said you definitely kind of become a product of like what you aspire to. I thought David, comedically, David Tell and Patrice were the two guys who I thought were the best at what they do respectively, you know, which are very different things. Yeah. But I always got, uh, because of my voice, I've always been compared much more to a Tell. Yeah, your vocal styles. Not so much to Patrice, and... um, which I thought was interesting, but you know, he passed away. He just just sitting with him in a hotel room on the road, just two fat guys eating Jack in the Box food. We shouldn't be eating at like three in the morning, and just him really talking to me like honestly about comedy and shitting on my jokes or telling me the ones that are okay. You know, yeah, whatever it was he just took an interest in me. Ironically, uh, to go back on the. The comics or the comical radio, mm-hmm. like years back, one of the coolest things for me at a time where I had nothing going on, they asked Patrice on that that early podcast, they asked him, uh, they got to interview him and they were like, what's uh, top five comics in New York? And he said, Attell, DePaulo, Colin Quinn, I'm trying to remember what the other one was, um, but he was searching for a fifth in his head mm-hmm. and he said, me. And he explains, uh, it's like, you know, Shaquille O'Neal was uh, on the 50 greatest basketball players of all time in his rookie year because they, you just see already it's like this right. guy's going to be a dominant force at some point. Um, he was like, I, I'm, I'll put Jay on in that regard. And that was like a nod that I could never have imagined. And I, you know, I hope I didn't let him down over the, <laughs> I wish, I mean, I wish he was here to see any of this happening because he'd be uh, happy. He definitely would be proud. Well, I mean, not unlike, uh, you know, you mentioned about ambitions and goals and things working out or, or taking a while to work out. I mean, that was Patrice's story, too, Yep, is that he was a guy who just wanted to do the work and wouldn't put up with anybody's kind of guff if, no. if they wanted him to do something he didn't want to do. He was like, no. And he was also self-sabotaging to some degree. Yeah. You know, he definitely made mistakes. I don't agree with all of his, like, decisions he made, but he definitely did what he believed you know, he he definitely stuck by his guns, which was always impressive, always very very impressive. I, I mean, I was just sitting next to him when he turned down Flavor Flav's roast on Comedy Central. They offered it to him. He was like, "I don't know him." And they were like, "It doesn't matter. It's like a thing where we get everybody together." Yeah. And 
it's a fun night. It, it boosts your career Great up. Great exposure. He was like, he's like, I don't know. He's like, you roast people you know. That's why everyone was kind of shocked that the people that know him close were like, he did the Charlie Sheen <laughs> roast. But I think he knew it was time. He should have said yes to that. Yeah. And he actually was very opinionated. He didn't have much opinions on Flavor Flav. I'm sure he likes Public Enemy. I'm not saying that, yeah. but like Charlie Sheen was going through all that stuff. Right. And it's Patrice is a guy who's very opinionated, and he had some opinions about that, and he really did get them out on that uh, <laughs> on that roast. So it was really a good thing for him. That was me. It did, but it did take him a long time, and uh, <clears throat> a long time in a similar way, I think, to me, because I've been surviving for years. You know, I haven't asked parents for money or anything. I've never taken out loans or had things you know take you know repossessed or you know lost an apartment or anything ever but it was always being like right there i've always been confused uh no dig on him i think louis ck is brilliant but he's like such a famous story he goes 25 year overnight success and it's like <laughs> i've known who louis ck was since well before i tried to do comedy like he's been in the mix right people in comedy knew it's... for a long but people in comedy not only knew but he had things going you know at a time right. when people would say Louis C.K. is an unknown. He, like, made the movie Pootie Tang. Right. He was, like, a major writer for... Chris Rock. Chris Rock show. He was, like, you know, so much... Original like, writer for Conan. Right. So I'm like, this... He's doing all right. Yeah. Those are all money gigs. He had HBO. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if he had, had uh, development deals and stuff like that, but, I mean, there's people who I know who are, like, I said, barely in comedy to some degree who were, like, oh, man, it was great. In '97, I had a got a development deal for you know three hundred thousand dollars, and that yeah. didn't work out. And then in 2000, I got another development deal for a couple hundred thousand. And that's like, and they go, you know, it's like fledgling, not making it. I'm like, that's pretty good. I never got a <laughs> chunk of money like that. I mean, like when I would get, I went to South Africa once for a gig, three and a half weeks for three thousand dollars, and you would have thought like, I'm like, well, that's it, life changer. <laughs> Three grand, you know, and that's like it, it, rel relatively, you right, know, it's that's like, like a month in New York living off of <laughs> that, that money. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, so yeah, it's not that big right. of a deal, but at the time it was like those amounts of money, two grand, a thousand dollars. These were all numbers that it was like, holy shit, man, this is all right, it's starting to happen. It's happening and it would be exciting. And uh, that's what I'm saying with the overnight, you know, 25 year overnight success. I'm like, I think Louis C.K. was doing okay for a while. It's like, <laughs> Overnight success as far as being a household name. Right. Like, everyone knows Louis now, but very different kind of struggle. You know, Attell would always come to me and be mad that I'd still be like, hey, Dave, you know, if there's anything you have going on, like, I'll, you know, I'll drive, I'll, I'd love to open for you on a gig. And he'd call back with five gigs. That was the beauty of him, but he'd call back. It was always this tough love where he's like, why are you opening for me still? Like, why are you not on the road yourself? Why are you not? And I'm like... They're not boogies. Like, why are they not like in your like you know your material or what is? It? I go, no. And like I'm like why? And I started doing it in front of him because he'd go to the clubs like, hey, you know, after this, the weekend's over, it's like yeah. great show, guys. Everything was great. They go, you should bring Jay back to headline, and they'd almost give Dave the sideways like, we got to sell out, you know, at least three of the five show. You know, it's like we it's kind of the numbers we got to hit. It's like we can't really take the time to do it. And I would get, like, off weekends at places. I did mm -hmm. a lot of Fourth of July weekends or a lot of Thanksgiving weekend shows, um, you know, weekends yeah. where they're not expecting a crowd anyway. Right, so it's, it's like holiday, they, so... they could pay me junk money right. to them. Thanksgiving week, Christmas Felt week. huge to me, you know, $1,000, $1,200 felt like game changer for me. But they could just have me come out and do that. But they weren't booking me regularly. So I was opening for a tell well beyond – him even really want he not that he didn't want me to go we didn't, we have a great time on the road together actually we're very uh we're very good mixture of guys to hang out but it was he was he was do, I was doing it well past him being like what do you do I mean Dave before I got the Comedy Central hour like Atel uh, like offered to for me to he said to find a production company that'll match he goes I'll give you you know I don't want to blow up his thing but he mm -hmm. I'll give you X amount of dollars have a production company match that and you'll be able to get a special like let's just he's like let's just get it out there let's just record it and he thought that would change things for me and that i mean you can't ask for more than that no it's but i mean that's that's really a sign i mean you have these really stars of comedy in your corner yeah Kevin that's Hart, that's, that, that's the Attell, that's the intangible Patrice. 
that's the intangibles, you know, that, uh, yeah, but, but like, you know, Kev, I watched kind of, Kev just skyrocketed from a position where he was next to me at one point. These were the guys who were like the elders to me that I was like, I'm impressed with these guys. And the fact that they were like enough into me to be like, all right, come on, let's figure something out with you. You know, Patrice helped me out with money in the funniest of ways several times. Because he didn't have a lot of money at most of the time I've known him, you know? He he did okay. Right. And uh, But he would do things. You know, I get it. Well, he wasn't I, doing corporate gigs. He wasn't no, doing the TV. He wasn't, yeah, so he wasn't I, doing the big money things. Right. And I get, like, having that mid-range money mm-hmm. because it's the same way I'm able to help out a friend now. If a friend's like, you know, I'm fucked. I'm, I'm really in a bad way. You can go now. It's like, all right, dude, here's a thousand bucks. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I don't know when I can get it back to you. Like, it's fine. Just take a thousand bucks. You know, which again, at the end of the day, a thousand bucks doesn't really solve anyone's problem completely, but helps in the in the very short term. And Patrice did things like that for me, like not even without me complaining. I was remember the first month to Montreal. It was like two hundred. He gave me two hundred dollars, and he goes here just so you can eat and stuff in Montreal and don't have to worry about shit like that. He goes just use this and like he's like try try to get yourself a deal while you're up there, which I did not. But I thought that was just like a, a sweet thing to do, you know, just to go. It's like here. Just, I was like, no, you don't have to. It's like, shut up. Just take it and shut up, you know, and uh, little things like that help. So much. it's why I have always tried to when I bring friends on the road to open for me or something like that, I tell them, like, I, was like, I, I got your food and your drinks. Like, I'll take care of all that stuff just because I know you go out, you're making, you know, at, if you're having a great road weekend as a feature, 600 bucks. Your flight was three fifty. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So all these different right. things. So I'm try. I try to make, take care of like all the. Is stuff. is that your relationship with the uh, your fellow Legion of Skanks? No, those guys uh, don't really go on the road. Dave Smith used to go on the road with me a whole bunch. Lewis went with me a few times back in the day. It's uh, no, those guys are out there trying to like headline themselves and stuff and getting some stuff going. They're doing great. They're both uh, both of them are doing awesome. And was that Lewis. the was that the first choice for a name Legion of Skanks? Yeah, <laughs> that was that was the first choice. No, it's funny. <laughs> our first episode. I wish we had it more clean because uh, it's a great line. Where what happened with that was my ex wife one day and me were in a fight, and Lewis was at my house, and we were we, we were leaving, and while my girlfriend, she's my girlfriend at the time, she comes outside. She's screaming at me. She's barking. She's yelling about whatever she's mad about. I think she was accusing me of cheating. <laughs> and we're walking out the door, and she goes, yeah, get get out of here, you piece of shit. Like, go go run off to your legion of skanks. And I was like, you know, fuck you. And then I remember turning around to Lewis, and I was like, that's a great name for a band. <laughs> legion of skanks. And then Guitar Hero came mm-hmm. out, the game Guitar Hero, if yeah, you remember yeah. that at all. No, yeah, I, I, so yeah, me and I Lewis, talked to the guys who made that game. Oh, really? Yeah. Me and Lewis would play that. We loved mm-hmm. it. We played together all the time, and we made our band name Legion of Skanks, which was awesome, we thought. And then we uh, we wrote a pilot together, the three of us, based off something. And just kind of the name just kind of does roll off of the idea. I used to work a job where I would drive strippers and escorts to bachelor parties. Okay. And the same job is that. Do you also become a bodyguard too? That's or? what it is. Yeah, it's bodyguard. Yeah. Um. Well, for the escorts, you don't have to bodyguard really. That's just to go in the Fuck a guy. But uh, bachelor party strippers, yeah. Yeah, you have to keep an eye on those. Horrible. Horrible, scary job for a guy who does not want to fight. <laughs> but for a fat but guy. But they don't know that. They, nope, don't, they fat just guy see just, you. Fat guy just wanted to see some nudity for free and maybe even get paid for it. And you it. had the long hair then back like, then? No. And uh, I would do that job. And the same company also by daytime was they'd send you out as like, to kids' birthday parties as like character, you know, Winnie the Pooh, Elmo. I'd, I would do all that stuff too. And we wrote a a series around that, um, and we named that series Legion of Skanks. We thought it was a good title because, oh, it kind of works with the driving the girls around and stuff. But but the play would always be the guys are the Legion of Skanks. You know, we're the shitheads. Right. It looks like the you know that we're talking about. It sounds misogynistic, but it's not. It's all us. And our first episode of a podcast, we're like, hey, everyone's doing these podcasts. We should try doing a podcast. You know, see what that's about. And uh, I wish we just had it clean because I would use it as part of our intro. 
because it's uh, Louis J. Gomez just going. Well, the whole thing's we're just talking for an hour mm-hmm. at Louis's house in the microphones, and the whole thing's about naming it. So we should oh talking shit with Big J, which thank God we didn't go with that because it turns <laughs> out there was like uh, Eddie Ifton. Oh yeah, yeah. And Jim Jeffries had a podcast called I didn't know. Yeah. Um, I think at one point I even said I was like, "What the fuck?" With Big J, and they were like, "That's like that's." What Mark Maron's thing? I'm like, oh yeah, WTF? I guess it is. What the fuck? <laughs> and we're just having these terrible things. And Lewis, at one point, it's just it's talked over. It sucks. And Lewis just goes, "Why don't we just call it Legion of Skanks? We call everything Legion of Skanks." And I was like, "Yeah, I, I think that's a good idea." And then right. we just went with that. And it is a great name. It's you know the logo fit good. I drew the logo one day at Caroline's Green Room. I remember that. Just thought it up. And when I saw you last summer <laughs> on the uh, the funnier uh, oddball oddball funnier die tour. There were a whole bunch of uh, fans of, of the lot. Legion who show up. Yeah, it's great. You know what it is, man? It's a great logo. I'm not saying <laughs> that I made it. It really is a great logo. So people, you know. Uh, and it shows up on your Comedy Central special as the backdrop. Yeah. And and Louis J. Gomez, uh, hilarious guy and great like business mind in that regard. Where he just like, you know, he pushed for us to get like, you know, we should have merch. We should have all this. And. and you know, my mind doesn't work in that way, so I'd been like, uh, you know, even if he was like, ah, we're not going to do merch, I'd be like, okay, you know, or we're going to do a tons of merch, like, fine. <laughs> but being on the road so much now, as I am, like those shirts, the merch, those hats, they come back. Like, like I see every weekend, there's dozens of people who show up wearing like Legion of Skanks stuff, which is so cool because right. that's like a. You know, it's waving a flag of friendship. You're like, oh, this guy definitely knows my shit. You Loyalty. Know? Yeah, absolutely. Bonfire starting to like really. Uh, that's the Sirius XM show you co-host with Dan with Soder. Soder. Yeah, that's uh, that's starting to really create its own buzz where people are coming out from that because it's already Legion of Skanks fans that listen to that. People who came over from following me from Ron and Fez or Bennington uh, days. People following Soder from Opie and Anthony. Yeah. You know, people who follow us are our own fans, just respectively. But then, now we're on a network where it's very discoverable. So people who don't know any of this other stuff just turn on series at Comedy Central. She's like, oh, "I'll listen to some comedy," and then this right. talk shows on. He <laughs> shows up in the mid. A lot of people, uh, we get phone calls a lot, which I love. These phone calls, I know they they they're not even trying to be backhanded. It is a bit backhanded, but I take the positive from it a lot. They go. Yeah, I just like listening to comedy when I drive home from you know work or when I'm trucking across the country because it kills yeah. time. And they go, and then all of a sudden they have they interrupt it with this fucking talk show. And I hated you guys at first, and like, and now I can't turn it off. They're like, now I just love it. Like I just they just locked into our sense of humor and whatever it is, and it's great. I love that so much. Yeah, I was a guest on uh, Rich and Bonnie's yeah. show, which is on the Opie channel. Yep, and I was amazed at these guys who were tractor trailer. Drivers calling in as they're driving the across the country. Yeah, absolutely. We had a, we had a, on Bonfire. We had a, a guy, young dude, twenty something years old, tractor trailer driver, and just like uh, him and his girlfriend, they just tra- they just drive across the country doing stuff. And they stopped. They like parked in New Jersey because you can't bring the trucks through Manhattan, <laughs> and took like public transportation to get over there just to come watch the bonfire one day. And this is just a trucker, trucker wow. kid. And now, um, you know, the same weekend your Comedy Central hour comes out, you've got Skank Fest. Yeah. Which, I mean, I guess for branding purposes, it's good. To, sure. But, but people might not know it's an actual comedy festival. It is a comedy Skank Fest. It's a comedy festival. It's um, podcasts. It's uh, live shows. We're doing a What's Your Fucking Deal there. Um, Joe List, Mark Norman's Tuesdays with Stories podcast is going to be there live. We're... Uh, What's the uh, the laugh button? I think mm-hmm. podcast is live. Race wars. Kurt Metzger, Sherrod Small, um, and then a whole bunch of just. But Doug Stanhope's coming in for it. Yeah. Todd Glass, who's never in New York, and I just absolutely yeah, love that anymore, guy. Yeah. He's the funniest guy to me. And he's he's a Philly in. guy. He is. We did not know each other back from Philly though. It's different right. days. Yeah, he but, was uh, in the eighties. Yeah, yeah, he was before. But man, is he funny. Yeah. That is just a guy who makes me laugh uh, <laughs> nonstop. We're bringing in the Death Squad guys. Brian Redband is coming in, and they're going to do a show. It's going to be a lot of fun. That's, again, another another brainchild of Louis J. Gomez, i got to say, that just, like, puts it out there. 
And the show, Legion of Skanks, is doing well, too, because we have, again, three very different sensibilities and, like, expertise. Like, Lewis, to me, is, like, such a ridiculous human being. Like, almost everything he does, I shake my head at. Like, what are you saying? What are you doing? It's ridiculous. Not offensive. I'm the more offensive, I think. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that comes into play a lot. And then Dave Smith, who is, like, you know, political. He's very into politics and and you know, that, that realm of stuff. And he's finding his niche in that world where, uh, I see he just did Joe Rogan's podcast and killed it. Uh, he's on Fox news every oh, week. Yeah. I mean, they put him, he's on Fox news shows every single week, multiple days a week. So he's going to be finding his niche over there. So it's great. And then it's, it's so cool that this one day a week now we're able to kind of come together and just bullshit for two <laughs> hours, you know, and it's like everyone comes back together. It's, it's a cool thing. It's also, you know, it's good for preserving friendship because we all are all going a thousand different directions. Yeah. And that's kind of what happened with Kev and me. You know, Kev, like, it was time. He had to go to L.A. pretty quick. Yeah. He's in L.A. and we talk on the phone a bunch for a couple months. And then everyone starts getting their own things going, you know. and uh, Or he got his own things going, I should say. <laughs> and then, you know, we just kind of lose touch over time. But uh, it's kind of cool that we can preserve that friendship through that show. What's been the, the best advice or maybe thing you, you've read or heard that sustain you over the last few years coming back from the storm and then all as all the things have started to happen for your career in the last year and a half. What was the best advice? Yeah. Get a business manager. <laughs> Someone told me to get a business manager. I'm like, yes, that makes life much, much easier. <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm not sure what the best advice would be. I'm, I'm like, I don't want to believe the hype ever. Because I said my thing is like I live in – I'm an- more anxious now than I've ever been in my life. And I've had anxiety disorder, I guess. I don't know if, you, if it's diagnosed. Is that what's considered an anxiety disorder where I'm, you know, they want you to take medications mm-hmm. and everything? And I've never ha- – you know, I'm far from rich, far, far from rich. But, like, I'm not stressing over money now. Things are going good. looks like things are going coming good on the horizon still. And I feel pretty confident in that. And, like, for some reason, it's just, like, I'm more – I'm just waiting for that other shoe to drop. Because there's something that happens with this where you're like, well, I haven't changed much over the last – I mean, the real the real money success stride has hit over the last year and a half. I am no different a comic in the last year and a half. Do you know what I mean? Than I was two years ago, three years ago, four years ago. So you're always just kind of like, are they going to find out this is all just bullshit? You know, it's like you guys didn't really care – Industry-wise, right. you guys didn't really give a shit five years ago. Like, what? Why now? The industry can be fickle. Absolutely true. And, and, and also, the industry has some of the highest turnover, you know. You right. Ever, in any, somebody in any somebody else is in charge of I making mean, the no, decisions. Everyone I pitched, you know, the Legion of Skanks pilot that we wrote, I pitched around only three networks. They, uh, two of them said they liked it, but they weren't going to go with it. And one was just like, ah, it's not really our thing. We don't care. And, and. Every one of those people are not there anymore. So it's like, you know, and then you can go back and take it around again, and they'll all be like, this is the greatest thing I've ever read. You know, it's like, and nothing has changed about it. And it's, it's all that. I mean. The people making the decisions have changed. I mean, the best example is, I know it's a funny show. It's not even a dig on the show at all. But if two-year comic, little, you know, tiny black guy goes to a network and goes, the real house husbands of Hollywood, it's going to be like, Ugh. Get out of here. But when Kev goes, Real House Husbands of Hollywood, they go, we'll do it. We'll produce right. it. We'll make this whole thing, you know, if they get behind something now. So it is fickle. It is a popularity contest to some degree. Yeah. And you got to keep that in mind. But I do. So I live now very much in like the, uh, is the other shoe going to drop here? You know, it's like, is this going to all, you know, I get worried that it's all going to go away. Mm. Well, you seem pretty comfortable now. Okay, so, it is what it is. What do you What do you tell uh, if if a new person comes up to you uh, after a show on the road, or even just after a skank fest thing, and asks you for advice, much like you wanted to ask Eddie if for advice? What would you What's the first thing you would tell a new a new a new comic? Stay on stage, high repetition. To just keep doing it. The more to me, the 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 thing people latch onto most is stage comfort. Over the best jokes, over the best, you know, uh, you know, writing all that stuff. Just it's 
comfort if they feel like you belong up there, people don't feel like they're wasting their money. I think when you show fear, being <laughs> frazzled, or or being shaken, or it's yeah. turned to like something ugly on stage, like they're like, "What do we pay for this? This is not a professional thing going on." <laughs> Ironically, you know, it, it seems less professional to kind of be casual on stage and comfortable and kind of working at your own pace, right. but that makes them feel like you're supposed to be there. I learned that going on tour with those bands and those amphitheaters. You know, I'm 15 minutes, I'm going on to do 15 minutes before Rob Zombie. Right, where they really aren't there to see you. They're really not there to see me. A lot of times, especially at that point, they were confused at what the hell was even happening. They were like, is a roadie? I mean, I look like, you know, they're like, is a roadie <laughs> right, just grab had, a microphone and start long hair rambling? and like yeah. jean shorts and... Sure, like, is a roadie <laughs> just rambling into a microphone? What the hell is going on? And so very quickly it had to be – that's kind of where I learned to, like, attack the problems in the audience. Like, and even if, like, you know, I say a couple of things that were funny and you hear, you know, 25,000 people, 20,000 people, you hear 3,000 laughs. That's still 3,000 laughs. It hits you like a wave. And you're like, this is going pretty – especially the people up front who kind of are forced to watch and listen are laughing. You get this big laugh and you feel it. You're like, oh, very cool. But, you know, you see that one guy who's just going, like, you know, thumbs down. He's like, get the fuck off the stage, whatever. And, like, learning how to, like, a, I can't comfortably ignore that guy. That will shake me. That will make me look like I'm, like, not supposed to be there. But if I ask that guy what his problem is and attack that problem, and then I have the camera guys put him on the screen, and I just start uncorking on that guy, just busting his balls, making fun of him. Um, it gets them feeling, oh, oh, this is like this is a thing. Like we're, he's supposed to be up there. It's what it is all? It's convincing that you're supposed to be up there, and you can only do that through. Be you can fake comfort for a long time, but it's nicer to be genuinely comfortable. I see that happen now. The only times that where I'm aware of it myself, and it makes me happy when it's over, is that uh, is to see something like I was in. Addison, Texas, the Addison Improv right. a few weeks back. Okay. And the Sunday show was just bunk. It was, like, crazy raining. It's already a weird location club. Like, I think it's generally, like, a black club for the most part. They don't really know how to market anything, like, for uh, like mainstream, whatever. Not black circuit comics, you know. Well, it's not quite Dallas. It's not quite Fort Worth. It's yeah. In that it's in between. It's the weird, weird place. So yeah. Sunday was light. because it was the, Everything was perfect storm of, like... Shit, that wasn't a good sized crowd. Real small. The host was definitely not comfortable. He had a real rough go. Funny guy, nothing attack on him. Newer, younger guy, and just like, you know, he ate shit. Uh, Mike Fenoya, who's a really funny comic, who goes and wrote me a lot. I bring him because he's a, he, he kills, you know? He's only been doing it for like five and a half, six years. Or six years, I guess now. You don't learn everything in six years, you know what I mean? Like, so, and he, they didn't like him very much, and I saw him scurry a little bit. And the, what I love is, like, the calm wave that comes over me. Like, when I'm watching Mike, I'm just going, like, uh, I'm like, I'm like let, me just, let me just get up there. Like, not that I'm, like, going to go up there and kick ass and do so great. Do you know what I mean? Right. It's just, like. I remember a time when that's going on. You're almost like, man, we should just cancel the show. There's only like, <laughs> there's only like 30 people here. It's not good. It's like it's a weird, you know, like, why are we even doing this? This room's huge, and there's so few people. Like, let's, we should just walk. And then when you get up there, you're like, oh man, this is gonna blow. And keep you keep acknowledging this is no good. Right. And you hear like the, you know, your your, your lips smacking. But uh, and now I like the my instinct is like. There's 15 people in the audience. It's like, and they go, we need you to do an hour and a half. They would suck, but I'd be like, all right, like whatever you want me to do. You know, it's, it doesn't matter because right. I'll just talk to them. I'll talk yeah. to the people. I'll do 45 minutes of talking to the crowd, and I'll weave in jokes, and it'll be fun. You know, go wherever it has to go. I mean, not that I, I never want to do an hour and a half comedy ever. <laughs> for the record, I'm not that guy. I'm really, they always, uh, with Mike Fenoy, it's always funny because they always say, how long you want to do? And he'll go like, I'll do like 25, 30. And they go, we got, and they come to me, they go, how long do you want to do? I go, a 45. I'll, give me the light mm -hmm. of 40. I'll wrap it up at 45, 50, mm -hmm. you know? And then they always, the first show, they'll always tell Mike, like, well, Mike, we're going to have you only do, like, 18 to 20. He's like, because the headliners always say they're only going to do 45, <laughs> and then they do an hour and 20. And I'm like, not me. 
<laughs> I'm not trying to hang up. The, and it's not like trying to take anybody like uh, or take it for granted or take anyone's money. I'm just like, come see me again next year. Like if I was, right. if I'm just like trying to ro- roll out everything and keep you hostage. At some point, there's gonna be these you know peaks and valleys. I'd rather just keep it like strong, heavy hit, like fun for 45 to an hour tops. You know, and then what's I don't get the point of like that marathon comedy it doesn't make any sense to me i don't like marathon podcasts either so yeah so big j it's uh you know <laughs> sorry it's, if i'm it's, rambling it's uh you definitely belong on stage and it's been great over the last few years to see more and more people figure that out well thank you sean appreciate so, it thanks for stopping by This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.